Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, and welcome to another Dementia Researcher podcast. For this recording, we have taken to the road to come and record on site at the University of Sussex campus down near Brighton. So I am hoping for a background squawk of a seagull to add authenticity and stereotype to this recording. I'm joined today by Ben Hicks, Research Fellow and Programme Lead on Determined, and Laura Hughes, a Research Fellow, both at the Centre for Dementia Studies. Hello, welcome to you both. Hello. Uh, we're going to be discussing broadly the theme of inequalities in dementia care and quality of life, and specifically touching on the Determined programme. Uh, evidence has emerged of major inequalities in care for dementia driven by factors including ethnicity, whether your care is self-funded or paid for by local authorities, and whether you were diagnosed earlier or later. DETERMINED, which stands for the Determinants of Quality of Life, Care and Costs and Consequences in Inequalities in People with Dementia and Their Carers, I can see why they made it shorter, (laughs) is designed to address critical, fundamental and as yet unanswered questions about inequalities outcomes and costs following diagnosis with dementia. These answers are needed to improve the quality of care and therefore the quality of life. So uh, as I said, welcome to you both. Let's start with a quick round table, introduce who you are, who funds you, people always like to know that, and how you got into this field. Should we start with you Ben? Yeah, sure. Uh, So hi, my name is Ben Hicks. I am a research fellow at the Centre for Dementia Studies and I'm the programme leader for Determined. Um, I'm funded by, the, or the post for this is funded by the Economic Social Research Council and the National Institute for Health Research, which is a joint funded uh, programme. Um, my background has been, uh, I uh, did my undergraduate in psychology and then specialised in uh, health fields, uh, working with cancer and mental health conditions. Um, and as I grew within that field, I um, started to become interested in the way that um, the environment, um, the kind of demographics of people can influence their experiences of living with chronic conditions. And then at this time, just having that personal experience with a family member who had dementia, and that um, generated some interest within this field. And my PhD then moved into uh, dementia care and then has, my, uh, has moved on since then. So is this your first research position since qualifying from your PhD? No, so I was working, prior to joining here, I was uh, working in Bournemouth University as a psychology lecturer and then moved and was working as the uh, researcher within the Asian Intermentary Research Centre there for about three years, I think, in total, and then moved here. I've always lived in Brighton and Sussex and did the commute. And then, you commuted to Bournemouth? Yeah, that oh. was fun. I was going to say, you must really like seagulls doing <laughs> yes, Bournemouth really, and Brighton. Yes. Well, I, yeah, I uh, probably should admit this, but I, I didn't actually know where Bournemouth was. I knew it was on the south coast. <laughs> so when I applied first, I said, oh, that's fine, it's on the south coast. I live on the south coast, and it was only when I got the job interview that it, I realised it took you three hours to get down there on the train. Oh um, so that was a learning experience. Yeah. Um, but now it's great to have a 15 minute commute just up the road. Nice. Yeah, going across country, I think, is worse on the train than going up and down. Anyway, uh, hi, Laura. (coughs) Hi, yes, I am Laura Hughes. I am also a research fellow at the Centre for Dementia Studies, and I'm funded through the Centre for Dementia Studies at the moment until I get some uh, further external funding. 
Um, so my background is many, many years ago, I actually worked in the care sector up in Scotland for about eight years. Um, I worked in care homes, which sparked my interest in going back to university and getting an education. So I went and did my psychology undergraduate and then went on to do my master's. And as with most people, then ended up doing my PhD down in Brighton. Um, and I knew how far Brighton was from Edinburgh. So yeah, so I, I flew down here and um, got accepted onto the PhD and I finished that two years ago now, I think that was. So this is my um, first position since my PhD finished and all of my research um, in dementia has focused on care homes and quality of life. Um, and that's from my, obviously my occupational background. And that's what I'm going to continue to do, hopefully, for the uh, foreseeable future. Nice. Well, welcome to both again. Um, so I think maybe we can talk a bit about the determined study because yeah, I know sure. you're the program lead for that. Uh, it's got many work streams. Seven I've got noted down here. Yeah. Uh, but they're not all taking place here in Brighton, are they? No. So it's um. <clears throat> So it's a, as I mentioned, yeah, it's a five-year uh, project funded by the ESRC and the NIHR. So we're leading it at the Brighton Sussex Medical School um, with collaborators from Sussex University, Psychology Department, um, King's College London, uh, London School of Economics, um, Newcastle University, York University, as well as trust sites uh, from Sussex Partnership, um, South London and Maudsley, and then the Gateshead Foundation Trust as well. Um, so yeah, it's a seven, the seven work streams um, associated with the programme. The first one um, kind of feeds into the other six, really. So the, the first work stream is around, it involves us recruiting over the next year 900 people who have been in, uh, diagnosed with dementia within the past six months. So is that key? Why the first six months after? Yeah, that's key. So that was one of the novel elements of the project and why it was um, why it received the funding. It was this. Um, so there are cohort studies at the moment looking at following people, but they don't tend to focus on this kind of key uh, period post diagnosis, immediately post diagnosis when lots of things are going on for people that they, they've just been diagnosed they've just come into terms with it they may have had a process up to that before the point of diagnosis or deciding whether to get diagnosed um, so that was one of the key things the funders really liked about the study the fact that it was getting people right at the very start of their dementia care pathway and then to the project itself then follows them for the next three years um, over that so we will at the point of consent we will visit them and talk to them around aspects such as their quality of life sense of psychological well-being as well as trying to understand services that they may have accessed um, and uh, any medications and things like that that they may have and then uh, following that we'll visit them annually for the next three years to again repeat the measures to understand how their journey over the past year has gone and how it may have changed. Okay, so you're going to visit annually. annually why, yeah. why was annually chosen, not six months? I, I think partly that was down to funding and funding mm -hmm. resources, um, as well as to reduce some of the burden on the participants. We obviously, we're not paying them to be involved in the study, um, but we are very interested in hearing experiences. So, so trying to um, ameliorate some of the burden that is, that is put on them was, was quite key to this as well. 
And this, because um, obviously, Laura, you work with, with care home research, uh, you specific about people and their diagnosis. Can they be in care homes? Will they be tend to be so, resident? Yeah, I mean, the brilliant thing about this study, <clears throat> the brilliant, yeah, brilliant thing about the study is that it is, it is completely inclusive. So we are recruiting people with any with any clinical diagnosis of any dementia from any environment or so, so people can live within the community care and assisted living facilities and with any dementia as well. The, the only key thing is that they, they have a clinical diagnosis, it's not mild cognitive impairment or subjective memory complaints. So they've had the diagnosis and it is within the six month period as well. And you're involving the carers if they have. Them. Yeah, so the, the primary participant will be will be the person with dementia. Um, if carers, so these could be informal carers such as family members, unpaid carers, or paid carers. If if they want to be involved in the research, then then we are taking them on as well. And again, it will run in a very similar way. So a researcher will interview them probably at the same time as the person with dementia, and then again follow them up annually um, each year for three years. Okay, actually, that's quite interesting you said paid carers, because I've talked to quite a lot of people about social care research and involving carers, and I never really thought about how they might have paid carers. Do, have you had experience involving them in research? Are they happy to be involved? Do they tend to step back? I Yeah, I've never had, yeah, I've never had um, an experience really with paid carers. Um, well, I've worked with care home staff, I suppose paid carers within community settings if people are employing them mm-hmm. within their homes. I haven't come across that. I've, I've worked and interviewed care staff as, uh, before providing care. Um, <clears throat> and I'm sure Laura can talk more about this within the care home staff, but certainly my thing is trying to get the time for care home staff having the time mm-hmm. um, to sit and listen to you and talk to you has been a massive issue. Um, as well as responding to emails and things like that. But in, ter- in terms of paid carers, for us in the community, um, we'll see whether people will engage with yeah, paid staff. Yeah. What you normally find is people <coughs> want to take part in research, and particularly in research to do with dementia. I've worked, as Ben said, working with care homes, I've rarely had people say they don't want to take part because they, they just know that it's a good thing to do. Um, I, I've not really had any dealings with um, community paid carers either, but certainly with uh, with care staff and care homes, like you said, trying to find the time can be difficult. Mm. But um, but there's a general sense that people want to take part because it's a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, okay. So some of the outcomes or what you're looking at is service use costs and outcomes, including quality of life. So could you talk through that a bit more, maybe? Yeah, so I suppose the key aim of the project is to understand what good quality of life should be like for people with dementia um, living with the condition post-diagnosis. And yeah, to understand what it should be like and to also try and map where people's journeys may deviate away from this point of good, excellent quality of life. Um, so is that also it, like coordinating, not coordinating, oh my god, uh, but you're sort of tracking how they are in in the system as well, so if they deviate from the system, does their quality of life go down? Exactly, Do you, yeah. so we're, we're looking at what services they're going to access, if they don't access certain services, why that might be, so is it something, is it such as perhaps they live in a rural area, so they're not physically there for them to access or they don't have um, they no longer have the driving license and don't have public transport that enables them to access these services. 
or is it something about the service that isn't accessible for people from certain populations or demographic backgrounds and things like that. So I've worked previous to this, I worked with older men with dementia in rural areas and a lot of them didn't want to access the services even though they were available for this kind of fear of um, openly admitting vulnerability and the threat that this might have on their sense of masculinity. So in, in a way to try and uphold this masculinity they would not access the services because they wouldn't then have to admit it until a point until a point when it became crisis and then they, they had to. Mm-hmm. So it was around and then other men talked about accessing these services and being uh, felt like they were infantilized and being treated like a child and and they just weren't understanding them as as the men. So they, they then came away from it and never accessed them again. So it was these kind of was that uh, did you find that was the same even if they had a female carer if they had a wife say or yeah so yeah uh, yeah absolutely so, so I mean the only difference was some of them would rely on their wives to to drive them to these services mm-hmm. and things like that so actually they had some of the transport issues there some men on their own who were, were particularly vulnerable um, and at risk of, of this kind of social isolation and not being picked up by the system and one of the reasons so this is my PhD so the reason that got funded was was because HUK Dorchester were really struggling to access these rural dwelling mm-hmm. older men at once to understand how they can do that better, I suppose, yeah. Okay. Um, so, Laura, shall we switch over to yep. you? Because you're not actually working on deter, determined, determined, yep. no, <laughs> which I'm will not. make sense when you see how it's spelled. <laughs> <laughs> um, but maybe you could talk a bit about your project yep. right now. Certainly. So um, for my PhD, I, using my background from, from my care work, um, I wanted to look at how we could measure quality of life in care homes. So currently in the UK, quality of life in care homes is not measured. Um, it's measured as part of research projects. I'm not denying that at all. There's lots and lots of really good research out there which tells us you know, what makes good quality of life in care homes and what affects quality of life. What we don't have is systematic measurement. So care staff in homes will document lots of different aspects of residents' lives, such as their well-being, their physical health, the medications that they're on, the activities that they take part in, all these different things. But they don't have a systematic way of looking at the quality of life. So that's what I wanted to introduce. Um, so I have adapted a quality of life questionnaire that was already existing so that it can be used by care staff. So it's giving care staff the power to measure their residents' quality of life. Now there's lots and lots of um, discussions to be had surrounding should we ask the residents themselves to rate their own quality of life, those, those kind of things. But with the high prevalence of dementia in care homes, it's not something that could be done consistently over time. So we've, we've opted for the, the, the proxy um, approach to measuring quality of life. And it's giving staff that power to measure the residents' quality of life, to understand what it is that they experience. And what we're hoping to, to do in some future research is to show that with the staff doing this, measuring their, the residents' quality of life, it could have an impact on the care that they give because um, it could help them to see the, the residents more as individuals um, and to enhance the person-centred care that they provide. Because asking them to, to think about some of the smaller details about the residents, instead of saying, okay, well, I've assisted this person to get dressed this morning, they can think, well, how were they when I did this? You know, Are they happy with the care that they're getting? Are they happy with 
the way that they're getting dressed every day. It gets them to think about the little detail of that individual. Um, so that's the, the kind of stuff that we're, we're, we've done and what we're planning to do is to actually create an intervention um, at some point soon where we've submitted for funding, so we're just waiting to hear back about that. Um, so we're going to create an, an intervention to try and um, use this in care homes more effectively so that care staff can not only measure quality of life, but then use that to make informed changes to residents' care. Um, so that's coming up in the future. How have you found approaching care homes about doing something like this? It feels like it's quite a off-steady type thing or could end up being that, you know, you're, yeah. if it comes back and says everyone's got a really low quality of life, yeah. they're not going to want... Well, we've, I did some qualitative and some quantitative work with um, with care homes throughout my PhD and the staff, although they, they want the residents to have a good quality of life, they understand that not everybody will. They also feel in a way personally responsible for the resident's quality of life and that if somebody did have low quality of life they would they would take that badly in the sense that they would feel really bad but they would then try and work to improve it so although there's that potential risk that they'll think well we're being observed and judged on the resident's quality of life it's more about giving them the the tools and the opportunity to help to improve it um, so the, I mean the staff were really um, keen to measure quality of life, they could see the positives out of it. They could also see the neg- the negatives in terms of trying to fit this into their time. <laughs> As Ben was saying earlier, like time, you know, time in care homes is really constrained. Um, but yeah, they were really positive about doing it. And in practice, they could actually do monthly measurements of residents' quality of life. So, and the, the instrument that we're using, which is called the DemCall CH, is, um, takes them about five to 10 minutes to do. And one staff member could, re- measure maybe five to ten residents in a month's period so it's not too strenuous um, once we create an intervention and develop that around that measurement as well it might be a little bit more time intensive but that's going to be created with the involvement of care staff uh, well care staff families residents commissioners everybody that's basically involved in care um, but in terms of taking part in the research that i've done and the stuff that i've proposed to them um, yeah, they're really keen, they're really up for, for taking part in research because they, they want to make improvements and they want to be involved in that process as well. You know, very often as researchers, we go in, we do research for care homes, we say, right, this is what we've done, we take our findings, we leave, we write a paper, publish it, and that's it. And the care homes are left going, well, what about us? What do we do with this information? So it's, it's about having them involved in that process and giving them something back mm-hmm. once they've taken part. And this is what you're prospective grant is about is more yep. about implementing it yeah implementing it so creating the the intervention which involves the use of that quality of life questionnaire creating the intervention and testing it and refining it and making sure that it works for the staff and for the residents not just for me as a researcher so. <laughs> how many care homes are you hoping to we're hoping to get around about 20 involved in the evaluation mm-hmm. um, so we'll do a randomised controlled trial a pilot randomised controlled trial sorry at first um, to then see if we can do a large trial later on but in terms of developing the intervention I'm going to hold some workshops um, which will involve care staff and residents and commissioners and anybody from the CQC who would like to be involved as well I would like to get them <laughs> uh, taking part um, and that's going to be about six workshops with around about six to eight people in each one creating the intervention so getting all of the relevant and important people involved and then using as many care homes as we can manage in the time period to take part in the the research 
Okay, and yeah. are you going to have a mix? Because obviously a lot of care homes are privatised, so yeah, you've got a different mix of. Yeah, I mean, well, most most care homes are actually private nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some local authority uh, ones as well. Very few NHS run homes as well. So the majority of the ones in England certainly are private. Um, but then within that, you've got large homes, small homes. You've got ones that provide nursing, ones that provide mm-hmm. just residential care. So we're going to try and get a, a good mix of homes. Um, and ideally as well, you want to involve homes that are all performing at different levels based on their CQC inspection reports as well. But obviously being mindful of homes that are maybe struggling, that you don't want to put any extra burden on them. So. Sorry, what report was that? The, the, the CQC report. So what's that? The Care Quality Commission. They're okay. the independent regulator. But that's not quality of life. That's just that's the overall, overall quality of the care. Yeah, so quality of the care home, and that 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 looks at it looks at the quality of care. It looks at the management um, and things like that within the home, whether it's you know well led and responsive. Um, but you don't want to go into a home and do intensive research in a home that's maybe struggling to provide adequate care because you don't want to add to that burden and take away care from from residents so it's trying to balance out the kind of homes that you go to Mm -hmm. so you said uh majority in england are private is it actually different in scotland being a someone who used to work in care homes in scotland yeah i mean the, the the care systems are very similar with some slight differences between england scotland wales and northern ireland um, I think it is consistent across the UK that the majority of them are uh, privately run. Um, so private, that could be, so I'm saying private in the sense of they could be sort of family individually run homes or they could be private organisations mm-hmm. or charity organisations. Um, but I think the majority of them are across the entire country. Uh, I just said England because that's where my research is going to be based. <laughs> right, fair enough. Yeah. So obviously the experiences of living with dementia can be very different for different populations and also quality of care, like how yeah. I would like to be cared for will be different to how you yeah. would like to. And Certainly. so, yeah, so you've experienced that going to care homes and... Yeah, I mean, every every single person is, is individual and some people will experience things differently um, or take from their experience something different so you could have whatever care processes you have in place in a home um, could negatively affect one resident while not affecting the other um, such as the different activities that are in the home you know some people might find that too stressing to take part of um, the approach of staff as well I mean I've, I've even experienced that in my own personal caring when I, I worked as a carer um, some people like to be address a bit more formally as you know Mrs Smith or, or Mr Smith whereas other people you know they want you to use a nickname for them so mm-hmm. everybody's individual and you have to treat everybody as an individual there is no one answer for for everybody and everybody's affected by things very very differently yeah and this yeah, experience too I think that's yes and, and definitely the case within communities as well people as often with certainly within policy practice and research people with dementia can be seen as this quite homogenized population um, viewed through that lens that what works for one person with dementia is probably going to work for the other what quality of life means for one person with dementia is probably going to be the same for everybody with dementia and what we know is you know, if you've met one person with dementia you've essentially met one person with dementia so so what people 
require um, and the support they require is going to differ between people. Um, this has been very, very small bits of research out there, but, it, but it's demonstrated that people who have occupied quite privileged positions within society, for instance, white men, when affected or labelled with or diagnosed with dementia, can see this as an absolute devastating condition that knocks them from their privileged position and status and they require a lot of support to come to terms with it and to manage and fulfil their sense of quality of life. And we know that people from lower privileged positions within society, so black working class women, when they're labelled or diagnosed with dementia, actually, you know, it's just another bit of stigma and discrimination that they've, they've had to deal with their whole life. They've just got to deal with it again and they, they've got those resources um, to deal with that already and maybe they don't need to draw on as much support from other people. Mm. When you say resources, you mean like resilience, but also, but I also imagine community. They have the community yeah. as well, which can understand them as well, yeah. So they can draw on this kind of support as well. So it's not seen as in any way as kind of devastating as it might be for somebody who's who's not used to having to deal with discrimination in their daily lives. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think that's sorry, I was going to and I think that's something that, that determined will pick up because of its we're looking for um, a diverse sample and, and within within the project as well we're specifically we're trying to oversample people from LGBTQ uh, backgrounds from black African Caribbean backgrounds, from white working class uh, backgrounds to try to unpick and tease out um, the differences in the services that people require and their kind of outlook on what quality of life is. Well, that's what I was going to ask, whether you were going to stratify or, you know, how you were going to sample your population. But um, I just wondered, how are you going to recruit them? Because recruitment is always well, the issue, yeah. and you were talking about underrepresented populations. Have you got any advice? <laughs> Anyone listening? Any advice? Yeah. <laughs> um, so we are targeting primarily memory assessment services at the moment. To um, I'm spending a lot of my life sitting in memory clinics and speaking to people. Um, either having just received a diagnosis or, or after a month when they come back to be put on drugs or something like that. So I then I'm speaking to them there about that. The trust, each of the trust sites also has their own recruitment tools. They have a database of people that we can access who can consent into being approached about research. So there's a quite a substantial database there, certainly within the Sussex Trust and I know London have a, have a of a similar database that we are recruiting from there. Uh, the Newcastle site are already linked in with a memory service, so I think they're getting a lot from that. Um, tools such as the Joint Dementia Research website has been very good as well, um, at identifying people across England who can be picked up by our three, by our three sites. And we are bombarding GP <laughs> surgeries um, and e-health practices with flyers and leaflets. Something um, that I... Uh come across is actually getting the GP surgeries to write letters if you are somehow I don't know about the ethics of that whether your study is linked to so, um, so we are we, um, we are looking at setting up some GP surgeries if they want to as participant identification centres so they will go through their database contacts and write letters um, talking about study I mean, they haven't got a huge amount of time and the no. pressure on them to, to be able to do that. So we're finding um, that we can, we've identified a couple of GPs within each place who are 
behind the research and would like to be more involved. So it's kind of um, using them as a resource, yeah. And um, and again, just sitting in on on clinics and things to ease some of that burden on the memory assessment services. So we just talk about the project and they just we're just asking the memory the clinician to direct them towards our room as mm. they're leaving if they want to learn more. Have you found, well, I don't know, you haven't, have you started recruiting yet? We have started recruiting. Yeah. We've started in Sussex site at the moment. Um, Newcastle and London are starting, oh, this month? No, no tomorrow. Yeah, it's the end of the month. <laughs> We're recording yeah. on the 30th yeah, of September, yeah, everyone. Right. So, so they start tomorrow. Um, so we've been going just over a month. We've got about 20. So it's it's tough. Like We need 25 a month per site. Um, so we look just over twenty five. So we're looking at uh, about seven, about seven a week that we need to be interviewing. So it is tough. We're slightly behind at the moment, but I think the last kind of month and a half has been setting up these processes, and we've learned a lot um, about yeah, just setting up the processes of of trying to get people in, and so not just relying on one avenue for recruitment. Mm. Um, I just wonder, with the different populations you've talked about who are underrepresented, so you're going to try and overrepresent them, will they come in at a later stage in their diagnosis? So you say six months from a diagnosis, but obviously that depends on when you have sought help. So you could be in quite advanced stages of dementia. That doesn't affect your study. You're not looking not for. Not at all. In fact, that would be really useful for for something like Workstream Six. In Workstream Six, we are looking at early versus late diagnosis and its relation to quality of life outcomes. So, within this, we are taking proxy measurement. So, within the questionnaires we give, we are looking at giving out a standardised mini mental state examination. So, we will pick up people's uh, cognition scores. So, obviously, some people may. Have felt comfortable, may have noticed symptoms um, to do with cognition, um, language difficulties, something like that, navigational difficulties early on and sought out help and got a diagnosis at, at the very early stages of, of, of the condition. Other people may, for certain reasons, have come later to it and so the, the, the fear of being stigmatised or, or not actually really understanding, not wanting to learn about this as well, we know that can put people off receiving a diagnosis, particularly in rural communities where it's quite an interconnected community and if you're then suddenly labelled with dementia, people can be quite fearful that well, they'll be excluded what, from Yeah, groups. I meant the government agenda I've got written down emphasises the need for early diagnosis because then you're in the system, but are you then disadvantaging people? I, you know, I mean, there are definitely populations you've talked about that won't want an early diagnosis. Yeah. They want to run as long as they can without the diagnosis. Yeah, I think got. that's a really interesting question and something that there is no other data set set up to answer at the moment. So that is one thing that determine will address or try to seek to address um, along with the main study and the, the qualitative work that accompanies it. But there, yeah, exactly, there is an assumption that actually receiving uh, an early or timely diagnosis is beneficial for people because they're on a the system that they, they can access services and that should then, in theory, improve their quality of life. Um, but of course, people then might become stigmatised, they may internalise some of what they read about in the media and the press, um, uh, and then almost um, isolate themselves or be forced to isolate themselves because their friends reject them through fear of the condition. Or if, I, if I touch you, do I catch dementia? This kind of thing. So they actually become socially isolated. We know that social isolation can lead to much quicker health deterioration. Um, I saw an article on the BBC about, should I still work? I've got dementia. 
you know, and if you feel able to work, you'd hide your diagnosis or you wouldn't want one because you'd fear that you'd lose your job. And, Absolutely. You know, yeah. there are different, you know, it's not the same for everyone as we've discussed before. So yeah. you could yeah, still work. Certainly. Yeah, you could still work. And I think a lot of that then is around other work we're doing in the Centre for Dementia Studies and much further built in terms of raising the dementia awareness agenda uh, and educating the professionals coming through, educating society, the younger people in society about dementia awareness, yeah. Mm-hmm. And making people feel more comfortable um, outing themselves as, as living with the condition, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then gaining that respect from the community and being positioned still not as um, somebody who's vulnerable and needs care, but who as somebody who is a, a social citizen a social citizen and can um, contribute to society, can continue to do everything that you used to be able to do, which are all important aspects of, of quality of life mm-hmm. and inclusion. Well, I wonder, because once you're in a care home, I mean, this is probably my naive um, understanding, <laughs> you're in a care home, you know, you is there a sense that you're sort of, you're not contributing to society anymore? And that, obviously that will impact your quality of life. Do the care homes, I don't know, run systems where you can go out and... Every care home is, is different. Yeah. Um, there is lots of variability within care in the in the country, but there are less opportunities for, for people who live in care homes in terms of being able to do a lot of things themselves. And that could be simply not being able to cook for themselves because a lot of homes will have a kitchen where they employ a, a chef or a cook to, to do the cooking so the, the residents can't do those things for themselves. Most care homes that I've had experience of, unless... Unless a lot of the um, the residents have more severe dementia and, and more impairments, functional impairments, um, most homes do have some provision for residents to be able to go out by themselves, or at least to go out with um, a care staff. If they have family members, obviously they, they get taken out by their, their family members. Um, but it's um, yeah, have, having access to to society can can be quite hard. I think if you're in a care home and. Um, so another thing that I want to look at in the future actually is is how um, care homes involve the community, you know, to sort of invite them in, yeah. yeah. So to bring them into the care home to show what care homes are actually like. And I, I've certainly worked with a couple of homes in Brighton who who have done that. You know, they hold tea mornings and they have dances in the evenings, and mm-hmm. lots of people are invited. Um, and they invite young people as well who are maybe at college, sixteen year olds, fifteen, sixteen year olds. Um, and they invite them in and show them, you know, this is what a care home is, this is what it's like. Um, well, I so, mean, I, I've actually never been to a care home, which is why I asked that naive question. Oh, okay. And I feel like I'm probably in the majority having not been to one. So something yeah. like that, that actually shows the general population that they're not a scary place. Yeah, they're not. And, you know, to be honest, I might be a bit biased because I used to work <laughs> in them, but I, I love going into care homes. I think they'd be absolutely great. And... I think yeah, people people need to understand them more. There's a very negative view of homes in the media, and there's it's similar to dementia in general. It's mm-hmm. it's normally very negative. You know, it's like you know people suffer from dementia, and it's normally the the headline. And the headlines you only ever hear about care is you know there was abuse in a care home. This mm-hmm. care home did this. They did that. And yes, bad care does happen, but bad care happens in very few of them. You know, like really bad abusive care. Uh, the majority of homes can be absolutely fantastic, and you know, you've you've got people who move into homes, and they get socialisation. You know, they get to live around people. They have people, you know, taking care of them or to assist them to take care of themselves. And 
I think that's a fantastic thing to do. And I think the public needs to know more about care homes and the good that they actually can do. They struggle, but they struggle within the system that, that they're situated within. So I think, yeah, go find a care home, go into it. <laughs> they, they can be great fun, honestly, absolutely fantastic. Just listening to the residents and to listen to their lives and their experiences and uh, you know, to realise how much people actually can do and they want to talk and interact mm. with people, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Okay, that seems like quite a nice positive note to end today's yeah. podcast on. So I'm going to go out and find a care home yeah, <laughs> and go and uh, join in having a cup of tea. Um, thank you to Ben and Laura. It's been great. And uh, please subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thank you. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.